0: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world, so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen.
1: Welcome back to another edition of Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on Managed Futures. My name is Niels Kastroblasen and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's conversation with industry leaders and pioneers in Managed Futures brought to you by CME Group. Today's conversation is taking place at one of the most important events of the year, namely the MFA Network 2019 Conference in Miami. It's a great event where hundreds of investors and managers meet in a wonderful setting that allows for some very productive conversations. Your guest host today is Chris Solas, Managing Director of Global Macro Hedge Fund Strategies at Cliffwater, and he's joined by three very interesting guests to discuss global macroeconomic market risks, volatility trading, and tail risk hedging. So without further ado, here is Chris.
2: Well, thank you, Niels, for the opportunity to be the guest host of the Top Traders Unplugged podcast. My name is Chris Solars, and I'm honored to be here today in the studio with three expert volatility traders, Dan Stone of Ionic Capital, Chris Cole of Artemis Capital, and Matthew Sarguson of Man AHL. Hi guys.
3: Hi guys. Hi Chris. Welcome. Pleasure thank to be you.
2: Here. <laughs> thank you. Now, before I introduce the guest today, I want to give you an overview of our plan for the discussion. We're going to divide this talk into three parts. The very first part is going to be a top-down discussion of the global macro environment, where we are in the economic cycle, some of the obvious themes in the markets today, and some of the less obvious themes. Second, we're going to talk a little bit bottoms up. We're going to talk about market pricing. All three of my guests are volatility experts. We're going to talk about what's priced into the market today and what isn't. And third, we're going to talk about the business of tail risk itself. A whole industry has arisen in the aftermath of the great financial crisis to run strategies that are hedges that can and will make money if markets crash. And we're going to talk about the pros and cons of tail risk strategies. So in no official order here, Dan Stone is one of the co-founders of New York City-based Ionic Capital Management, an options-based relative value trading firm. Ionic was founded in 2006 which is when Dan and I first met. I've always found Dan to be one of the most insightful traders and one of the best at articulating precise market views, so I'm very happy to have him on the podcast with us today. And Dan tells me that his very first paying job as a teenager was watching New York Yankees baseball games.
4: That is correct. Hard to believe, but in the infancy of data analytics in sports, there was a startup company that hired me as a teenager for $5 a game, to spend a few hours watching each game and shorthand encoding in detail everything that took place and then faxing it back to them at the end of the evening.
2: Wow, what a nice start. And Dan is a Boston Celtics fan, but we won't hold that against him. Chris Cole is the CIO of Austin-based Artemis Capital, a systematic, quantitative, and behavioral-based ball trading firm. Chris is a superstar in the volatility world. When he publishes a thought piece, all of Wall Street reads it, He just published his latest 12-page letter this week, which is very relevant. Chris is based in Texas, but grew up in Michigan, and he's going to tell us about his first job.
5: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think my first real intriguing job was I actually ran tapes for WNBA games. Wow. Yeah, that was in high school.
2: Wow. Yeah,
5: it was really intriguing. So I, I, I literally would just hit record on the tape dynamic and then... Was at the palace. I see. Wow. back in Michigan,
2: Matthew. We're going to have to see what your first job was. Maybe it was sports-related. I,
3: sports <laughs> I feel really bad now that I've not come in with um, some sports story. The, the nearest thing, I mean, my first paying job in my I guess late teens came actually out as a result of the thing that then led to what I do now. So very much with foresight, my dad bought us a personal computer back in 1977. So I was about nine at the time, I, which when I was slightly too young to do what my older brother did, my older brother was, you know, writing video games by the time he was 15, 16, and making enough money to sort of hang out outside of the school pretty well. But what it did teach me, it taught me to touch type before I was in my teens. And then in the mid 80s, it was around the time when all the big businesses in London were first sort of going through the motions of up, uptake of computers into the office, transferring paper records into digital records. And so as a school kid, being able to be paid actually a relatively high salary, equivalent to like 12 to $15 an hour, all through the summer holidays, just sitting there, typing away, transferring records. It was mind-numbingly boring, but it was basically data entry of the sort that, you know, then paid for holidays. Well,
2: pretty that, good. That's great. And Matthew's uh, official introduction is the co-chief executive officer of MAN AHL, acting acting chief investment officer and a member of the Mann Group Executive Committee. And Matthew and I also go back a number of years. It seems like only yesterday, but I guess it was November of 2017 when Matthew presented at another excellent CME conference where I helped to moderate his panel. And his presentation was called A Robot's Eye View of Best Execution. We're not going to talk about technical market microstructure, but that is the depth of what our panelists bring here today. So we're gonna jump right into it here, Matthew. I'm gonna stick with you. What we're talking about at first, we're gonna talk about the market risk. We're gonna talk about perhaps what you see in the market, where we've come from, where we're going, particularly from your perspective.
3: Sure, so yeah, thanks, Chris. Clearly last year was something of a turning point in the post-financial crisis period. We've seen vol pick up, but we also seen, you know, the dynamic from the QE era into the, the kind of less accommodating rising rate Era, and it's you know it's certainly been a challenge for a, a lot of trading. The things that seem to be the themes. I mean, it's less the, the rate rises now because the Fed seems to be backpedalling pretty furiously. But the reality of things like the China trade war issue. I mean, there's a lot of sensitivity to what's being said on tweet, but very little evidence of actual progress yet. And I think that's going to be one of the bigger themes for me personally because I'm London based, and you know it's a existential crisis. For an entire country, the, the, the theme of Brexit may not be the biggest market impact, but running a business based in Europe, it's a huge thing. So we did a count up around the time of the actual Brexit vote back in 2016. And then across the 150 odd people we had at HL at the time, we had 29 first languages spoken. And mm. the, you know, while that includes several You know, Chinese and Asian, but predominantly it's it's European based. So every part of, you know, Bulgaria, Latvia, Czechoslovakia, Poland, you know, Germany, Italy, we have a lot of Italians for some reason. You know, they're all in the business. And if you have something that threatens the structure, the culture of, you know, the nation, it, it, it affects the way people think. So we've been doing a lot internally to make that robust and make sure that we support you know, everybody across the team.
2: Do you have contingency plans for, if, so for the hard so Yeah, the,
3: the business has full contingency plans. I yeah. you know, can't go into everything, but it's something we've, we and every other business running out of the UK has had to think about.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, Dan, I'd love to hear your view. You've talked a lot about the era we've been in from quantitative easing over the past nine years to quantitative tightening and what that means for... Markets. Can you talk a little bit about that, please?
4: Yeah, I, I think the the idea is that the the math of quantitative easing really matters. Yeah, it's all about the shift at the margin. So if we go back twenty four months ago, first half of two thousand seventeen, the Fed was at a zero, and so maybe people weren't so focused on that. But you had the ECB and the Bank of Japan buying in huge size. Yeah. Now we fast forward to today. Fed is in QT, quantitative tightening, yeah. theoretically $50 billion a month of balance sheet reduction. ECB is scaled quantitative easing down to zero. And Bank of Japan, quietly but openly, underbuying 20 to $30 billion a month. So if you add together A plus B plus C, the three big central banks, you're looking at a close to $150 billion U.S. reduction in market support. And so the idea is that that really does matter for VAL At the end of the day, that shift, and I think that's a part of the reason, in addition to what's just been mentioned, as to why we saw this uptick in vol in the fourth quarter. It's it's not a coincidence that at the moment global QE goes to zero or negative, that we see this surge in vol.
2: Yeah, and I think even even bigger picture, going back further, in order to save the global financial system, quantitative easing has printed something like ten to twenty trillion dollars. And this gave rise to asset prices, asset price inflation, and we've been at this inflection point starting sometime last year into this year when it's gone from quantitative easing, which was a tailwind, into quantitative tightening, which is a headwind. And if you want to keep it that simple, it was great for asset prices and now it's becoming very challenging for asset prices.
4: Right. It has to be both ways. Right. That's the thing at the end of the day. And so the point is the pivot has just occurred. Right. And so that's why now you may see it really start to matter for Val.
5: Yeah, Dan's right on the money about this. If you just go ahead and do a surface plot, all the central bank balance sheets, you see it's directly in line with global asset prices, global stock prices. And it has over the last year has started to decline. It's not a coincidence why why global stock prices and volatility has increased. So so much as we talk about the Fed, so much about whether they're going to you know raise rates or not. Well, they are raising the shadow interest rate already just by simply reducing the balance sheet right. fifty billion dollars fifty billion dollars every month over the course of the year that's the equivalent of 60 basis points of synthetic rate hikes in addition to whatever they actually hike right. so there is a and really we have not seen any reduction uh, significant reduction by other central banks which may come down down the pike so you do not create 15 trillion dollars out of thin air supporting the longest bull market in history and expect that you can wind that back without some disruption in risk assets. And that is the dominant theme, the dominant and most important macro theme
2: going forward. That's right. So the way I see it, when we talk about some explicit market risk that we hear about on the news every day, they include the trade war. They include Brexit, the US government shutdown. These are very obvious market risks. We don't talk a lot about it in the mainstream media, about the quantitative easing to quantitative tightening story, but one theme that we do talk about is the rise of populism, which I think is very interconnected to this quantitative easing that's happened over the past 10 years, right? The asset printing that has led to the distribution of, of incomes, misalignment of, of interest, and we've seen this rising in populism just not only in the United States, in, in Europe. And this is something that's not going away anytime soon. Yeah. And I think this is all very interesting. One of the other risks underneath this that isn't getting a lot of attention, I think one of the biggest elephants in the room is the underfunding status of U.S. public pension plans. And I think it's all interconnected to where we are in the global cycle. But right now, explicitly, the f- underfunding status is about $5 trillion. And remember, TARP was a national emergency at $700 billion. And if we actually mark these to the proper discount rate, it might be something like 10 to $20 trillion of underfunding status. And when we think about populism in France, they're riding on the streets for the 11th week in a row. You know, this is a a very tangible thing that hopefully will not be felt here in the United States, but very well could be. So one of my biggest market worries is not necessarily an economic one, but a social one. And we're seeing this all around the world. I think it's so right on the money when it comes down
5: to the hidden risks, the hidden second order risks. I do not think that there is a Trump, a Sanders or a Casio Cortez Without Bernanke, Yellen, and Draghi, I don't think it's so. If you look, if you look across history of any financial, any period of financial crisis where there's been fiat money printing, it naturally ends up. Or whether that's devaluation against gold, whether that's even decoinage in Rome, a natural rise in populism follows and that either breaks to right tail fascism or kind of left tail socialism communism. So this is a this is a massive risk that we and this risk is coming and I think people need to be thinking about this in terms of I mean if you're if you're a system that's looking at how do you plan for your asset allocation of the next decade or two decades, the expectation understanding how how the rise of populism falls into that is is vital because You may see, we're already talking about Brexit. You may see political upheaval. You may see changes in tax code. You may see, uh, we're already seeing political pressure on monetary policy. So these are some of the factors that come into play and this has happened after a bull market. The the times are good. We're not even at a point where we need to talk about bailing out pension system. This is a second, third order risk um, and also a source of potential volatility going forward.
2: And I think what this illustrates is how challenging the job of being an investment manager is because not only are you looking at asset prices you're looking at, looking at security prices from the bottoms up you have to understand the interconnectedness of demographics and politics geopolitical politics and all of these trends and cycles that are happening concurrently so I think that's a beautiful segue into perhaps the state of the current markets today I would love to talk about what is priced in you know we i'd love to talk maybe briefly about about fx about interest rates about equities and about commodities what is priced in today and where are some of the best opportunities for long volatility trading for for tail risk trading dan you put out a a very nice piece in early january it was your top five long ball macro themes can you talk about those
4: One basic idea is that markets tend to really fixate on equity vol.
2: Yeah.
4: And in the past, it has been the case, at least let's say for the last decade, that equity vol has generally led vol in other asset classes. But that is by no means a permanent characteristic of markets. Markets operate in cycles. And sometimes interest rates are the first mover or currency is the first mover and equities follow. And the idea here is that with monetary policy shifting to the degree as as it has and the risk that maybe now the Fed has done too much without even knowing it, Mm. that it may turn out to be the case that we get again back to the era of interest rates or currencies as first mover. Right. Now, last year, vol went up in equities, maybe less than one would have thought given everything that took place, but vol went up very little in interest rates and currencies. And so there is a concept that we may see a catch-up, a very violent catch-up as the world comes to grips more with this The consequences of this monetary policy shift.
2: Yeah. And what is your view on credit? Is credit usually the leading indicator, the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the asset markets?
4: Well, again, I think credit and equities we can lump together recently is having (laughs) operated closely. And so people point to, okay, you're starting to see an uptick in defaults. Does that suggest more is to come down down the road? But that's not always – it's not always – permanently the case that credit is a leading indicator. Sometimes it sometimes it's a following indicator and sometimes yeah. it's a leading indicator. I think it changes with the cycle. So yeah. I think what matters most is just right now, where do you have the most positioning in a way, short yeah. file, and where is there the biggest risk for the squeeze? Yeah. That may prove to be what actually moves first. Yeah. So I, I completely
2: agree. What I've seen is we saw 2017 was this Goldilocks year where the VIX was trading at generational lows, all-time lows. In 2018, we saw almost a normalization of the VIX. And if we're just talking about equity ball, the VIX was trading, I think it finished a year at close to 20. And over its 30-year career, it has averaged about 20. So the, the what was interesting about the fourth quarter of 2018 and really the second half of 2018 was not necessarily that it was so volatile. It's that that was finally normal. What was, what was so odd was that the preceding eight years had been so abnormal, right? You know, it's funny
5: because I was, I was writing to my investors about how – so I'm from Michigan. Uh, Michigan, where, where my parents live, they're going to be negative 20 degrees this coming weekend. It's going to be freezing. Yeah. It's a winter storm, obviously. In the summertime, it can go all the way up to 100, Yeah. right? The average temperature is across the year is about 50 degrees. And you cross that temperature twice. Once once in the fall, around late September, early October, and then again in the spring. Nobody in Michigan, if you ran around screaming, oh my goodness, it's 50 degrees in October. It's 50 degrees. What a big deal. People would look at you so so bizarre what's the big deal? Right. right. It's winter's coming. Well, volatility follows the same kind of cycles. Speaking about equity wall. But it follows the same type of cycles as as leverage and credit. And we have just seen a return to average, a basic return to average. Equity vol stayed over 20 between or not stayed over 20 but it averaged on an annual basis over 20 between 1987 and early 90s. It was four years where it averaged over 20 over an annual period. It averaged over twenty on an annual basis for six years between nineteen ninety seven and two thousand four. Another four years in the last great financial crisis. Where did where did annual vol come out last year? About seventeen,
0: hmm.
5: about seventeen. So we're just getting to back to a change in the seasons, and we're seeing weak hands like some of the retail, you know, VIX products being taken out, and weak hedge funds being taken out by this, and a tremendous amount of media attention on what what really is just a, an October breeze in Michigan. Mm. It can get a lot cold yeah. so
2: winter is coming. winter winter is coming. Matthew, where are you seeing opportunities? What is the best opportunity in volatility or just around the globe in terms of asset prices that are that are fair or even cheap today?
3: Well, as as, you know, as quant, we generally don't look specifically at value at any point in time. But the opportunity has been trading in vol in all asset classes. Mm. It's definitely it's you know being active rather than passive. It's not you know thinking about where the long opportunity is. Particularly, it's about being long short through all the cycles. And we've had you know so last year ended up being pretty good in in FX and and fixed income because vol didn't move that much. So we ended you know from a short perspective that was good. We you know, in, in the equity space, picking up the right times to be long has been good. And, and actually, last year was the only the only thing that didn't really work was in the commodity space. But the previous year that was outstanding. So this, you know, it's it's just being opportunistic and trying to get mm. the breadth and trading, you know, well, you know, cheaply. It's it's, it's, it's there's no kind of rocket science behind it. It's it's you know, just looking for the breadth.
2: Yeah. So I I've covered a lot of hedge fund strategies over the years, and I found that volatility arbitrage strategies. Really, can fall into two categories: either your long ball or shortfall. The long ball managers are usually more responsible. They're paying premium, and really, the, the way they lose money is death by a thousand cuts. And on the flip side are the short ball managers, the ones who are collecting premium. You know, they can analyze at a nice positive double digit return for, for an eight, you know, almost an eight year period after 2009 up to 2017. But they get hurt all at once, and that's. The most challenging strategy, they just, all of a sudden, they're they're taken out by the market. And we saw that last year in in February 2018. That was one of the the, the big moments. Chris, you've talked a lot about this, really, that perhaps that was not the big one. That was a medium one on the way to a larger systemic unwind of up to $2 trillion of short ball strategies that you've estimated.
5: Yeah. So I wrote a piece in 2017 that talked about how the market was... It resembles an Ouroboros, which is an ancient symbol of a snake devouring its own tail. And the concept of this analogy is that a lot of the dominant a lot of the dominant systematic financial strategies, um, including ones that are not necessarily explicitly shorting ball, but hmm. many that could be implicitly shorting volatility through the way that they rebalance, use volatility as an input. So as a result, you have this ecosystem of trillions of dollars of products and this is just in equities, but it could be expanded to m- many different asset classes that actually just rebalance based on volatility as an input in a self reflexive manner. So lower volatility leads to lower volatility, which is one of the reasons why we had such a low vol environment in 2017. But conversely, higher volatility can then reinforce and lead to higher vol and the, the perfect example of that is an 87 crisis mm. where the a classic implicitly short volatility strategy was, was portfolio insurance. So I think, I think this, this period where we've had excessively low volatility driven by central bank quantitative easing and expansion of the monetary base has, has really resulted in a buildup of many of these different strategies and presents both an opportunity and a, risk to, to, and a risk to the
2: system. Dan, what do you see when you look at the market in your space? Like you've been a very responsible, long ball player, and it's been very, very challenging. And the volatility arbitrage managers who've made money and are at the top of the league tables are all the ones who've been short volatility. you know how, how has that been to trade over over these past almost 10 years now at this point?
4: Yeah I mean this this cycle of course has been a punishing cycle from the <laughs> long file side because you've had this systematic central bank file suppression yeah And so it has created or has accentuated the volatility inertia where volatility has, Lasted lower for longer yeah however at that inflection point I think we are likely to come out of this where volatility just as it, it was lower for longer volatility will be higher for longer as well yeah and you're likely to get this big squeeze along the way yeah because the one thing that has happened is following central bank policy you've seen this proliferation of institutional shortfall strategies yeah and they've been very very successful on a trailing basis. But it leads to this counterintuitive result in a way where the lower vol is, as we just discussed, the more vol they want to sell. And so they create a short vol gamma position effectively where they have to buy vol back as it rises because they don't have the staying power on the trade. But when vol is at its minimum, they're at their maximum in terms of exposure. So we haven't seen that strategy tested yeah. Because the mindset behind that strategy is still very much into a smaller spike, yeah. sell vol, because the central bank put means the this, this system is not going to become unglued. Yeah. And so each time so far, that strategy has worked. And we've had now three or four tests and then quick reversals. But the argument is all these accumulated effects start to matter, whether it be fundamental event, events, changes in central bank policy shifts in the political regime. Eventually, there's enough to push us through that inflection point. And all of a sudden, instead of vol actually coming right back down, it continues to go up. Yeah, The flip is, this, this switch is now flipped and everyone actually has to buy vol back. All the short vol players have to buy vol back. And I think what we're going to see as a result this explosion of vol of vol. And vol itself, therefore, react react even much more violently than, than it has in the past.
2: And do you have an estimate for where that trigger is when the dealers start to Byball.
4: You know, there's there's no magic number, but it, it feels like we, we were kind of at the precipice is what I would say in December. Yeah. We were at the precipice. And yeah, so the Fed, maybe that's one of the reasons why they peered into the abyss and they seem to walk back. Yeah. Now, will the Fed continue to have the power to control markets as they have? The market takes it as conventional wisdom that central banks will not let markets go down and have the ability not to let markets go down. That has been the case, but it's not so clear that it will continue to be the case. Yeah. And, I, and if I were to say, what's what's the biggest risk to markets? Is that markets get the sense of central banks having lost control? Yeah. Risk does not
5: necessitate outcomes. And one of the things about this oroboros or self-reflexivity of, of short ball that is across the institutional landscape, it's not all concentrated in the same. There's different. Levels of this ecosystem of short wall.
4: Mm.
5: Uh, so we saw the there like just like there's at a poker table, there's weak and there's strong hands. The weak hands at the table are many of the retail short VIX ETPs that blew out. You know, it's a very small portion of what I call the two trillion dollars short trade. You know they, they were about three to five billion. That blows out. Very weak hands. It took very little volatility for those mm. those products to blow out. And some some poorly managed short vol mutual funds, some poorly managed short vol uh, hedge funds. The next dynamic is of rebalancing is some of the vol targeting funds and some of the risk premium funds. They have a longer horizon. The question is, how much of an accumulation of volatility does it take for these strategies to deliver? Mm. So. Some of the short ball guys get blown out right from the get-go in just a short period of ball. Other guys are actually putting on positions mm-hmm. when ball makes that first rise up. So it's the second increase in ball mm-hmm. that move between you know 20 to 30 that ends up hurting that next leg of institutional, more sophisticated institutional strategies. At the longest leg is a three month accumulation of ball or six month accumulation of ball, which ends up resulting in a deleveraging of some of the larger kind of risk parity institutional ball short selling strategies. And if we want to keep going further, if you have enough volatility that results in crashing equity prices, It results in a slowdown in share buybacks, which are a short wall, implicit short wall suppressant. Mm -hmm. So there's this – it's not just one day of wall and the world ends. And the world doesn't necessarily have to end. I think if you're the Fed, what you want to do is you want to orchestrate. I think what Powell is trying to do is maybe orchestrate a gradual increase in volatility such that there is a responsible deleveraging of this massive institutional short vault trade in a way that doesn't cause a massive crisis. Of course, the big risk is that if you get a period of -of out-of-control heightened volatility that maybe comes from something even external to markets – then you end up in this this disorderly short ball covering across the entire ecosystem of short ball players, which could end up looking like something like
4: 1987.
5: Yeah. So, you know, one doesn't have to, one doesn't have to be you don't you don't have to put your end of the world hat on and say you know ball going to go to to 200. It could happen. I think the 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 potential for that is there. And if you're an institutional investor and you're not thinking of that. I think there's a greater than average risk of that. But nonetheless, I think if you're the Fed, you're trying to orchestrate an orderly increase in ball. Either way, if you're not thinking about a higher ball regime and the way that these strategies play into that, I think you're already behind the curve as an institutional investor.
0: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.